The Pacecast from Pace Communications, hosted by Anita Pace and very special guests. I think that there's great opportunities for this area. I absolutely live and breathe Hull. I promote it wherever I go. I genuinely believe that it's a great city. There's great people that live here. But we need some ambition. And, um, you know, that is the single most important thing that we need to do here. I think one of the things that has really transformed the Ricks organisation through one of those moments is, is when Rory made me realise that actually, you know, we shouldn't carry on doing what we've always done. What we should do is we should really think about stopping certain things, even though it was something that we'd done forever. When I think back to it, if it was a sliding door moment, I think that's probably one of the most important things. That yeah, I mean, the caravan industry is, is very challenging. I, I don't think there's anything that we've ever done that hasn't been challenging, and it's usually pretty challenging as soon as we go into it. I, I, so I'm always ready for a storm as soon as we start doing something because it's never straightforward. And you learn a lot of lessons, and if you learn the lessons the hard way, you tend to understand how you need to deal with those things. Hello, and a very warm welcome to our February Pacecast. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest is a big personality around Hull and the East Riding. Not only does he head up a very successful family business, but he's also an active advocate for improving our prospects in this region. He's also been recognised royally, and I'm sure we're going to hear more about his CBE later. I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Tim Ricks, who's the chairman and chief executive of Ricks, formerly known as JR Ricks and Sons. Hello, Tim. Hi, Anita. Well, that was a very nice introduction for me. I don't know how I'm going to live up to that. <laughs> I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. <laughs> So those of you who listen to our podcast regularly know that it's standard practice for our guests to bring in a special object. Now, this object is something that's meaningful to them and is, has been pivotal in their, in their life. So I'm looking forward, I don't know what it is, so I'm looking forward to seeing what Tim has brought in and, and listening to why it's so special. So over to you, Tim. Well, I've given this a lot of thought because I, I really could have brought all sorts of things in to talk about. Um, but recently we moved offices and I was clearing my father's office out and I found um, a volume report for uh, March uh, 1987 for all the vehicles that were delivering fuel. And uh, that was at the very start of my career 37 years ago when I came into the family business. And in those days, we used to do a, do a day's work, whatever we were doing in the office. And then uh, to finish off the day, we'd probably go and drive a lorry into the night to make sure that we got all our, all our deliveries out when we're trying to grow our petroleum business. Uh, and so on this particular day, I was uh, driving one of the vehicles, uh, leaving the depot at seven o'clock and doing a delivery to, uh, to Weatherby, to a filling station. And it just really reminded me of, of, of how we've, we've built the Rick's business and, you know, what we expect of people. You know, we don't just expect them to, or we don't ask people to just do the jobs. We ask people to give that little bit extra. So a lot of the directors and managers and family members all have something else that they can do to help the business. And in many cases, that's have a heavy goods vehicle license so that they can actually help the business when we get very, very busy. And that's proved to be very helpful and it's not just me that's done that uh, but it's uh, my two children my two boys that are now in the business they both have their hgv licenses and they can go out and do deliver fuel when we're very busy and it's it's something that you know i think is really special to our business where we can go above and beyond and actually do something very different from other businesses and am i right in thinking you've actually done on occasion helped customers out by actually going and delivering fuel in remote places in bad weather oh yeah 100 percent. i mean you know i've done it the kids have done it 
Um, it, I've had all sorts of experiences of, you know, having to get up at two o'clock in the morning because the customers rung me and they need some fuel. And I've actually gone myself and collected the lorry from the depot and gone and delivered it. You know, there are all sorts of tales that I can tell. Um, I was once delivering in Holderness one one evening and um, and it was really quite late and I was lost as usual because every time I drove the lorries, it was dark. Uh, and I knocked on a door um, and uh, there were all these screeching women in this house and it was an Ann Summers party and they thought that I was the stripper and I was a bit alarmed by this because I was only a young lad at the time dressed in my Rick's boiler suit just trying to deliver oil. Oh, funny, funny. Um, right, well, thank you for sharing that story with us. Let's let's go right back to the beginning then. So, as we all know, you head up the very successful Rick's group. Uh, it's a... Am I right in thinking you're the fifth generation to head up the business? Yeah, that's correct. I'm, I'm the fifth generation all right, of, so of would it, the family business. So great, great, great grand father yeah yes set up so tell us tell us the story of rick's how it started and and how how those early days of your involvement so we've got to go all the way back to the 1870s for when rick started and my great great grandfather robert rick's was a sea captain and uh, he had actually uh, before he was a, a sea captain on the steamers he'd gone away to sea before the mast on sailing ships um, so he'd, he'd been all around the east coast of the UK because that's pretty much where he plied his trade. Um, and in fact, I've got a, an order for um, a brand new ship built in uh, 1887 for £93. Pounds. So the price of ships has, has moved on a little bit since then. Um, and also I've got a, 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 an invoice from Andrew Jackson, who we still use as our solicitors today for maritime things, um, for uh, twelve pounds, twelve shillings, and sixpence, when he was operating outside his insured limits. Now, it might surprise you to know that he was actually only in Perth in Scotland, not Perth in Australia. So he can't have been insured to go particularly far yeah. in this particular ship. But it was left to my great great grandmother to uh, to sort out the issues because the people who held the mortgage on the ship were trying to reclaim it because they were claiming that he wasn't insured. Obviously, they didn't reclaim the ship, but I, I just think it's interesting that, that there he was at sea while great-great-grandmother was left sorting, sorting things out the, and yeah. using solicitors that we use today. And probably £12, pound, £12, 12 shillings and sixpence, they were probably being overcharged like we are nowadays by the solicitors. <laughs> <But anyway. laughs> Let's not get into that one. Um, so that's so that's the early days of the business. So let's talk about how it's... You know how it's evolved. So the years. business has, has has evolved really predominantly as a as a shipping business into the nineteen twenties uh, with uh, with coastal steamers um, up and down the east coast of the UK, predominantly carrying coal, and then that moved on um, in the thirties and forties um, with uh, petroleum distribution. Um, and after the war, when the pool was disbanded, in, in the war everything was was pooled together. But after the war. Um, in 1947, the Ricks family had a bit of an argument because we originally were Robert Ricks and now we're J.R. Ricks and Sons. The, um, a lot of people probably, well, the older people will remember that Ricks had some um, some actors in the family, Brian Ricks and Sheila Mercia, Brian Ricks with his farces at Whitehall, and Sheila Mercia, who was Annie Sugden in Emmerdale Farm, and they were part of um, Robert Ricks. And they, Did uh, not know that. And my grandfather decided that he was doing all the work and a lot of people were doing a lot of acting and it was being and it was quite difficult and so he handed his notice in and great grandfather at the time uh, obviously didn't want to, to lose grandfather uh, from the family business and he said look if we go on our own and we take the one ship which was the magrix 
1947, you know, will you stay? Will you rescind your notice and stay with me? And so grandfather decided that he would do that. And so everything that we have today really comes from that one ship in 1947. Now, at the same time, the other side of the family decided that they didn't want to continue with the oil business, which was in those days based down on Watson Street. Um, and uh, and so we took that over as well. So we ended up with a shipping business and a, a very small oil business. And in those days, there was no refinery on the Humber. So we used to charter ships from a company called Robotham's um, and 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 bring the fuel all the way from the uh, from the Thames up the uh, up the old harbour and up the river hull. And you can't imagine that any ship was small enough to actually get up the old harbour to Anne Watson Street, which is where B&Q now is on Stone Ferry. But they did. And in those days, they carried about 350 tonnes. Well, over the more recent past, we bring product into our depots now up the river hull. And uh, our barges, which now collect it from the refineries on the Humber that have subsequently been built, carry about 500 tonnes. So, you know, things things move on. It's quite surprising. So that was your grandfather? Yeah. Then clearly father took over. Yeah, well, my grandfather sadly had a heart condition and wasn't very well. And uh, so my father had to leave school at 16 to come into the business. And, um, you know, in those days, the business was, was, was nothing like the size it, it is today. Um, but the shipping side was 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 quite had become quite busy, and um, grandfather had ordered um, quite a number of new ships to be built uh, on the continent. And now he'd ordered these ships, and there wasn't really any work for them. And he, then he then he fell ill. So father, who was only sixteen at the time, left school and found himself in the office uh, almost on his first day, having to go around and see the bank managers to try and get these four ships financed that grandfather had built. Which sixteen? Well, he was a bit older than that then, but it wasn't much older. It was, you know, he was yeah. he was certainly nineteen or twenty, yeah. uh, which he did, um, and uh, and he ran these ships. And not only did he run those particular ships, but he um, took a number of German ships on time charter as well, um, and he ran them. And I can remember when I was younger, we lived in Hedden in those days. Uh, my mum was a hairdresser uh, in Hedden in the marketplace, she had her own hairdressing shop. Um, and um, wherever we went, uh, father was always on the telephone. We couldn't go anywhere where there wasn't a telephone. And wherever we were, restaurant, out, wherever, dad was on that telephone doing link calls to the ships, giving them instructions as to where to go and what to do. And that's the, the one thing I can remember about my childhood is, if you ever pick the phone up, all you could hear is... <laughs> Nighting radio, will you accept a link call from the Bob Ricks? And, and and you could, and as a little lad, I used to be frightened to death of the telephone because you could never understand anything that anybody was saying. So this was um, obviously this was your your dad, and was it was it always expected in the family that the son would take over the the reins? Look, I think that I think the the business is uh, as I can only speak for myself. Yes. I can't speak for for the. I think Dad, as a necessity, had to come into the business. Um, I was always really interested because how can you not be interested in ships and trucks and all those sort of things? It's it's a bit like a toy box. Um, so so you have an interest in it. And from a very early age, Dad used to take me around to the dry docks and used to see the ships being repaired. Um, it, it was. Um, in those days, 
you know, drink was a big problem on the ships. You know, our ships used to spend more time on the rocks because they'd turned the wrong way than they did actually <laughs> managing to get to most of the ports. That's what I remember. So we were, they were always in dry dock. They were always having I mean, the bottoms taken out of them and renewed. And I can see my dad now because he always had a pen knife. He would go everywhere with this pen knife, sticking his pen knife into steelwork to see whether it was good or not or whether it was, you know, whether it needed replacing. And I can remember on one occasion, because in the in the in the sixties and certainly the seventies, there were a lot of restrictive practices in the shipyards. And if anybody was seen to do anything other than the jobs that the men were given to do, everybody went on strike. And I was I was on one of our ships once in a dry dock, and Dad got his pen knife out, and everybody went on strike. And because I think it's because he was doing something that, that no, he shouldn't they should, have been right, that they okay. should have been doing, yeah, and it yeah. was only a small thing, but. I think the, the 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 you know my children certainly have never experienced that and and I would never want them to because I think those restrictive practices were something that killed off the industries that we've got you know that we haven't got in Britain today and I'm not blaming the workers I, I think it was a mixture of you know very bad management not moving forward and and workers being very difficult I think you know business today it's about everybody trying to work together mm. So when you were growing up then, were you growing up knowing that you were going to go into the family business or did you have a choice to... to well, I think I would always had a choice, but I always wanted to go into the family yeah. business. I found it fascinating whenever I had the opportunity, I would be in the office when I had the opportunity. I would. Um, my grandfather on my mother's side, would um, he was a, a general manager at BP Salt End, but when he had his holidays, he would actually go on our ships for a holiday i can't really understand why i did that but anyway he did and and because dad in his in, uh, in his in his wisdom had decided to cut costs on the ships he always took the cooks off them and dad's idea was that he took the cooks off the ship and somebody else could cook and you paid everybody a bit more but you saved money because you weren't paying a cook so when grandpa went on the ship he used to uh, he used to do all the cooking mm. so wherever he went on the ships the ship's masters were quite happy because their grandfather there doing the cooking he enjoyed doing it <laughs> So you went to school where? I went to school uh, first of all in in Hornsey at, at, at a, a company at a school called Darnley's, where I was uh, taught maths by an old First World War fighter pilot called Mister Darnley, who I can remember in his beekeeping kit and cheating uh, and, and teaching me pound shillings and pence, which of course is absolutely bloody useless yeah, nowadays. Yeah. Well, a lot of education you, uh, when you learn. <laughs> and in base 12. And then uh, I moved on from there to, uh, I was sent away to school to Martin Hall, which was a, which was a school in Bridlington, uh, where I suppose I was locked away with 65 other young kids. A boarding kids, school. A boarding school, mm. where, where, where it was sort of survival of the fittest. And, um, and then I left there and I went to Sedba School, uh, which is probably best known for people like Will Carling and rugby over on the, on the West Coast. Now, the one thing I remember about, my school days is I was always freezing cold, soaking wet, and starving hungry. But rugby, you you like rugby though? Did you play oh, yeah, rugby? I love, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've always played rugby. I, you know, when I when I came back from from um, being away at school, one of the ways to start to get to know a lot of people locally was to play local rugby. Mm. So I played at Hull and East Riding, and then I played at Hornsey. It's, you know, rugby's a great game to uh, to get to know lots of lots of lots of people. Yeah. Yeah. So after school, you went straight into the business? No, I went, uh, I was the first person in the Ricks family to go off to uh, university. Well, I say university, it is a university now. It was a polytechnic. Um, I struggled a bit with my uh, with my, my A-levels to get the right grades because we were too busy running up and down hills and, and playing rugby at school to, uh, to think about anything <laughs> like doing any studies. Uh, and so I remember... Um, I'd been on a, uh, an expedition across the uh, Sahara Desert um, after we'd finished school and 
I was waiting for my results and dad was determined that I should be an engineer. And to be an engineer, you had to do maths and physics at A-level. And I wasn't particularly good at maths and physics. And I remember I did maths and physics and, um, and geography, and I loved geography. Um, I think, you know, what I would say and what I've always thought is that you should let your kids do what they want to do rather than be told what to do. Mm. And that's what I've tried to do with my children. But look, I always wanted to please the old man, so I was going to be an engineer. I don't think Dad had any idea what an engineer was. I think Dad thought an engineer was somebody who would go on board a ship and sort of sort the engines out, whereas actually an engineer is somebody quite different from that. It's, you know, whether you're a production engineer or a mechanical engineer. But anyway, I did my degree in um, in engineering at Sheffield Polytechnic, ultimately having failed my A-levels and then... I went to a, a, a crammer in um, in Oxford where there was one-to-one tuition. I remember my results coming through and I rang up when I got back from the desert and Dad said, oh, you've failed your exams. Your results are B-O-O-B, boob. So I thought, well, that probably <laughs> sums it up. <laughs> and um, and anyway, so I said, but I've enrolled you in this place. It's costing me a fortune called Edward Green's Tutorial Establishment. And he said um, they, they, they put you in for loads of exams and eventually they'll ask you the right questions that you'll be able to answer. And so I used to run from one exam room to another uh, with the different A-level boards. And I think I've got now three A-levels in physics and three in maths. And, and I used to call in at the pub on the way past to these different exams. And, of course, everybody else there wanted to be doctors or whatever, and they needed, you know, all A's and B's and all I needed, I think, for Sheffield Polytechnic, which is now a university, uh, Sheffield Hallam. Uh, I needed two E's. I suppose with grade inflation, two E's, I always kid myself, now he's like a B at today's yeah, level. Yeah. So. It's obviously important to your dad. He was he was clearly adamant you were going to get those qualifications. Yeah, dad was that was fine with dad. But, you know, dad would be ringing up when I was supposed to be uh, doing my work and saying, you need to come back, we're busy to drive a lorry. And I used to say, dad, well, I am trying to, you know, pass this degree, dad. And, and you know, I can't be coming back and driving the lorries all the yeah, time. yeah. You know, we, we, it all worked out all right yeah. in the end. And I think, you know, people get very hung up about grades and about inflation. And what you really need is a is a, is a well-rounded person that, I'm not saying I am a well-rounded person, but you need, you know, when you're looking for people, it's well-rounded people, you know, um, that, that have done the best they can and mm. tried. Try hard and apply themselves. And apply themselves, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think we've got loads of really good examples of that in, um, in Rick's at the moment where, you know, we... We have a lot of kids that have struggled with their education but actually are in management positions mm. now and are, are really driven to uh, to perform. Yeah. So what was your first role in the business then after you got your degree? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, well, I went – it wasn't my first job. My first job was actually – I was going to um, work for Demulders that used to do all the, uh, all the rendering and making of dog food. And it was a bit like walking into hell because you walked into this um, – this building that had a pit with all dead animals, all mixed up with uh, with a with a with a digger, and it was—I've never seen anything like it what, before in my life. What was this? Sorry, it was it was they make dog food from from the leftovers of all the carcasses and animals and no. stuff. So never eat dog food. No. Yeah, yeah, and it was oh like walking God. into hell. But I needed—I wanted to work somewhere else, so um, I had a year to to go and work somewhere else. And I was, and I accepted this job with Tony. Sorry to Mulder. interrupt. Was this because your dad felt you had to go and no, work no, somewhere because else? Because to be fair, I was on a sandwich course, so oh, I so, so I needed right. a year to yes. go and work somewhere. Okay, got you. And then what happened was, uh, uh, there was a in the college, and this is amazing. In the in the um, polytechnic, the um, 
the people that were looking for placements for people put a placement on the board that nobody else was interested in. And it was to come to Hull, believe it or not, and work for Globe Engineering, which was part of the Mar J, mm. J. Mar group, um, to work in ship repair, which was absolutely my most ideal job that I could ever imagine. And, um, and so I accepted this job and I came and I worked on the fish dock. And uh, in those days, what was happening was all the deep sea trawlers... Um, like the Picts that was the sister ship to the Gull that was obviously sadly lost, were being converted either into standby vessels to stooge around the rigs or, the, um, in Mars' case, they were converting their ships into seismic survey ships. Really, really interesting time. All these ships were going off and surveying the east uh, eastern seaboard of America um, and there were, I think there were two or three different companies. And I was the only person that worked at Globe that was allowed to go on all these different ships because I was sort of looking after them, looking after them, maintaining all the invoicing and making sure that, I mean, I loved the job because obviously it was absolutely, I mean, I could Your do it with spot. my eyes closed. Yeah. I, I found it really frustrating because there were restrictive practices um, and and I could see that it was it was the old fish dock mentality of you know when a trawler came in at all costs you had to get it finished and back out to sea again, which was important in those days. But when you were doing a job that was priced, it was more critical to make sure that you were more efficient. And and the fish dock struggled to uh, struggled with that concept. And and um, I think I'd only been there two days, and um, and the former boilermaker I can remember him like he's yesterday called Wilf Wood um, had me up against the or screaming Reamer, his assistant had me up against the wall with Wilf Wood screaming in my ear, "Do you know, lad, who's in charge here? And it's not you." <laughs> in a very threatening way, and that sort of put me in my position. But it sort of made me more determined than ever that you know things needed to change. But I loved that job. I went, I lived there. I nearly lived in the office. I remember they paid me £40 a week. I would have done it for nothing. And I used to ride my bike up and down the dock to the different ships so I could get on them and, and deal with everything. And the other really interesting job we had, we, we were looking after a ship that they'd sold to the Ministry of Defence, which was the a ship called the Colonel Templar that was effectively a spy ship that used to work out of Faz Lane. And there were restricted areas on that ship. And uh, and that was a really interesting job looking after that. You're clearly passionate about the shipping side, but Rick's is Rick's of today is is a, is a group of what twenty two businesses. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's a lot. a lot. I mean, I can't even tell you how many. So I mean, I'm interested in how it's evolved over the years because it's it's got its heritage in his in in history in in shipping and then obviously the fuel side, the oil. But there's a lot more to Rick's than that. So when you took over took over was that your influence that all that diversification or? i i think that it's a mixture of circumstances and situations and all the ricks businesses whether the shipping whether the fuel or whatever they are they've all evolved they've all changed and we've actively managed that um i think that yeah i was really passionate and interested in the shipping side um because it was our history and my grandfather and my great-grandfather had all been involved in it but i think when I, I think probably when I took over 20 years ago, I've, I've worked very closely with my managing director, who's Rory Clark. Uh, because when you first go into it, you sort of asked me earlier on, what's it like, you know, do you go into a family business? When you go into a family business, people treat you with an awful lot of suspicion wherever you've arrived from. And they think that, that whatever you're doing, you're after their job or discovering what they're not 
doing right. So somehow you've got to integrate, or this is what I believe anyway, this is what I've told the kids, you've got to try and integrate yourself into that business and be part of it and, and, and ask people the question, you know, why are you doing it this way? Why have you always done it this way? And if they say, well, we've always done it this way, you say, but 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 haven't you thought about why we should be maybe doing it a bit differently? Or, And I think that my father was very keen for me to be absolutely involved in all parts of the business. So I spent a lot of time in each individual part of the business. So I would spend a lot of time with the ship's fitters going around, working on the ships, making sure they kept going. So you learnt your welding, your fitting. Um, it's the first time I've ever fallen asleep on my feet because we used to go from one <laughs> job to another to keep these really things moving. And I've never been so tired ever in my life. And there was... It was disaster after disaster, but you know that was that was in the old days. Um, it's it's then you became a boiler engineer. Then you became oh, you were a tanker driver while you were doing all this. Um, but working on the coalface like this, this is how you're earning your stripes, isn't it? It's well, I think you... I think what's in, I think what I learned from that is, and there is a day when you've got to learn to stop working at the coalface and actually start working in the office. Um, but what you learn is you learn all the problems that all these people face. So mm. when you are actually trying to get them to do these jobs, you 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 have made the mistakes yourself. And believe and you me, I've made it. plenty yeah. of mistakes, yeah. Yeah. Um, which we won't go into now. But um, while I've been driving these wagons or repairing people's boilers or or repairing the ships, and I think you you have a really much better understanding of of of, of the jobs that those people do and the mm. problems that they that they face. And I've been very keen for, you know, my kids, my two lads, Robbie and Harry, who've come into the business now, to be aware of all that as well. And, uh, and are they sorry, are they doing the same as you then? Are they on the cold face? They're yeah. get rolling up their sleeves? Well, I doing... think I think the answer to that is yes, because they've obviously both uh, driven the lorries. I think it's um, probably uh, more difficult to be... The business is way bigger now mm, than it was bigger. then. And so you can't sort of be on the curl face of all the things. It's sort of almost impossible. But as an example, Robbie works as a CAD technician. I mean, Robbie um, left, went to Heimer's. Um, when he was coming out of Heimer's, COVID was there. There didn't seem much point in sending him to university. All his friends were potentially going to university to, to be locked in. So he... He was always very interested in that practical aspect. So he went and learned all the CAD techniques. So he can now draw up any, as well as driving a lorry, he can, he can, he can draw any of the mm. uh, static caravans that we've got now in our manufacturing facility. And he's quite capable of doing that now. And I think that that's a, that's a good skill for him to yeah. have. He's a, he's a valued member of that team. Now, there will be a point at which he has to stop drawing caravans and start to learn other things. Um Harry, on the other hand, Harry went um, to university, Newcastle University. He um, went and worked at Accenture mm. uh, in management consultancy. And what I can tell you is that Accenture as a management consultancy firm works very differently from how a family business like Rick's works. I can imagine, yeah. And, and so it's been quite interesting. I mean, look, my, my view on these things is there are, there, are, there, are, there are good things to take out of every experience and everything. So yeah. there are good things that we do. There are things that Accenture do that we can learn from. Yeah. So um, that's been an interesting integration of Harry, who now looks after all our digital and IT. And to be honest, that is one of the things which is going to be so important going forward, um, dealing with things like that. So I'm I'm very pleased that we actually have a member of the family who can who can do that. 
Is there? I don't want to get into it too much personal stuff. Is there any rivalry between the two boys? Because at some point, one of them's going to be sitting in your chair. Well, I think, I think, I think, I think what will happen is they'll, the, the the two very different boys. You know, one's much more practical than the other. Mm. They have they have skills that complement each other, and I think actually, I mean, look, we all go to work in Ricks. I never see them. We're all in different directions mm. all the time. You know, you just I just don't bump into them. I think people think that I I sit in an office with the two kids or. And I and I just don't. I just I, I don't see them at all at work, um, because they're busy doing doing what their things are. And I think actually the good the good thing is that I've sort of been on my own uh, as a member of the family um, since I lost my father seven years ago. Um, but they but they they'll work together. And mm. I think that it's it's it's. So they get on. Oh yeah, they get on. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, hundred yeah. percent get on. Yeah, that's good. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I think that's that'll be a good thing for the business. Look, the, the the boys in terms of capability are probably way more capable than I ever was, and so I think that there's a, you know, that's a great opportunity for them to take the business forward to the next step. I mean, we're sort of at the stage now where you know I've worked with Rory for for fifteen years. I have the crazy ideas of what we're going to go and do. And Rory's the kind of person that makes sure that when we do it, all the legislation's in place and we're not doing anything too crazy. Um, but I try and run Ricks, or I've tried to run Ricks since I've been doing it for the last 20 years in an entrepreneurial way. So if there's an opportunity related to whatever we're doing, you know, let's take it, let's have mm. a go at it. And, you know, if you do that, the one thing that I have learned is that if you're going to do something, you've got to put somebody who knows what they're doing in charge of it. So that diversification's worked well for Rick's though, hasn't it? Because if you just focused in one in one particular business area, then when there's challenges in that market, it obviously makes it more difficult for the company. But the fact you've you've got all these different businesses across different sectors, if you like, it, it strengthens your position when things are particularly if you talk about the caravan industry, for example, that that's challenging at the moment. Yeah, I mean the caravan industry is is very challenging. I, I don't think there's anything that we've ever done that hasn't been challenging, and it's usually pretty challenging as soon as we go into it. <laughs> I, I, so I'm always ready for a storm as soon as we start doing something because it's never straightforward. But and you learn a lot of lessons, and if you learn the lessons the hard way, you tend to understand how you need to deal with those things. Um, but yeah, I mean the caravan industry came about really completely and totally by accident. I. Um, when the caravan industry in 2008 was absolutely in free fall and, it, and it, when it was last having a really bad time, um, Cosalt, uh, that were tenants of mine and had a site next to some of our land on Stone Ferry, basically uh, wrapped up, stopped operating. And I was able to buy their factory. And I bought it really as a property deal um, to build a supermarket on. And uh, we were going to build 120,000 square foot Sainsbury's on Stone Ferry. Um, and Sainsbury's were really, really keen on doing this massive thing. And we, we've got a lot of land, especially when you added um, the uh, Kersal Caravan Factory to it. And and then anyway, because of a number of things, the change in what was going on with the, super, the supermarket decided that they, that they weren't, that they didn't want to proceed. And so here I was with this sort of factory, which I'd bought with absolutely everything in it. There were caravans still on the line. There was all the kit to do everything. There was there was just everything in there. And I think the interesting thing about that was that the the I knew the guy that had run it, a guy called Peter Nevitt. And uh, and I rang him up and I said, Peter, do you want a couple of challenges? So he said, Oh well, what are they? So he said, Well, so I said, Well, the first one is, uh, do you want to run your old factory? So he said, Oh yeah, I'd be really interested to do that. 
He said, what's the second one? I said, you'd have to work for me. <laughs> and he worked for a PLC, and then he was going to come and work for a private business. And there's a there's a lot of difference yeah, between these yeah. two things. And without Peter, we could we could never have uh, got. He him. obviously said yes. Yeah, yeah, he said yes. <laughs> but the, what I knew about Peter was because he um, he 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 had tried to buy the business for I think sixteen million quid. They wanted thirty million quid for it, and I'd bought absolutely everything for one point two million quid with a with a with a split on plant and equipment, land and buildings of fifty fifty. So it worked out pretty well for us that we that we picked this up. I knew Nevit had a had a business plan and we effectively just sort of pressed the button and started the production line going again because everything was there and we had a queue of people wanting to work for us and we could be way more flexible than everybody else. Um and that was really the beginning of of caravans. You could say well you know if 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 you always think everything should be related to everything else so you do what you understand and what you know about there is a sort of tenuous link because at the time our ships were um, bringing a lot of timber in when we had dry cargo mm, ships yeah. from the Baltic states. And we were always looking for cargoes to get them back into position. And we'd gone through larder cars, we'd gone through machinery. And then the next thing that they wanted it was second-hand static caravans. So I had this crazy idea because we were filling the ships with every ship, seven of them were going back full of static caravans. They looked like floating caravan parks. And I had this crazy notion that, um, and Rory would tell you it was a crazy notion, that actually what we could do is we could start building caravans and we could take the old ones in part exchange and we could use the same lorries that took the new ones to bring the old ones back and we could create freight for ourselves on the ships, um, which seemed like a really good idea to me and it was a bit like you know selling cars, which is what we do as well. It's never quite worked out quite like that, but that was the link that we had to, to or that I, that I had in my head anyway. And, you know, one day I think it would work because we we still have the business, Seaway Logistics, that exports car second-hand caravans to the Baltic states and Poland where they take them and they take these second-hand units and live in them. So these businesses, it sounds from what you're saying that they've come about through opportunity. You've, you've seen an opportunity and you've seized it. So am I right in thinking there hasn't really been a plan? When you... When you sat down and you took over the business you didn't set out with this five ten year plan to build a group of businesses selling cars building holiday homes anita there's always a plan <laughs> it's just as soon as you've got it it changes <laughs> and it can ch it could change this afternoon when i go back i mean you know i think that you know that certainly when you know we've had a a very you know we've had it for the last few years as a group we've had a very good run of things even through covid it's, it's yeah touch wood um, but, I mean, it's getting very hard now. And we've always expected that to be the case. But, you know, in my world, when things get hard, opportunities arrive. Mm, mm. And so there are, and I don't know what necessarily those opportunities are. I have in my mind what I think they might be. And so we can take what we've got, we can add to it, or we can change it. You know, I've been very keen to diversify what we do with um, building static uh, caravans because, you know, it is a very cyclical market. And so a year ago, we started a conversions business because somebody arrived on our doorstep that was unhappy with where they worked and we had a spare factory because of, through our property uh, portfolio. And, um, and you know, we, we'd we started by doing a whole load of police cars for the Bermudan police force, believe it or not. So if you go to Bermuda, you'll see a victory uh, conversion sticker on the side of a Bermudan police car. 
and um, and we and we, we make secure minibuses um, for the um, for the government. And you know, I love the migrants because we had an order for 140 secure minibuses to move migrants around, which we're in the middle of doing at the moment. So we've started that business sort of from scratch. Are you quite agile then when these opportunities come along? Do you kind of Physically not particularly <laughs> agile, I have to say, because I know you see me on my bike occasionally. I do. But, and have a good laugh <laughs> what about it. No, no, what a spectacle that is, yes, with my Lycra on. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think, look, I think that um, what's happened was when Rory and I started working together, I, I, if I go sort of right back to the very beginning, when I, when I was talking about coming back into the, or arriving in the business when you asked me that question, I arrived in the business. Eventually, as people retire, what happens is they put all the files on your desk, so you end up doing their job. That's ultimately what happens when you're in a family business, certainly what happened to me. Mm. You usually get all the jobs that nobody else wants to do to start with, and then as they retire, you get all the jobs, and then you get to choose the people that you want to work with going forwards, and you put your team together. And um, to start with, that's very difficult because wherever you go, people say it was never done like that yeah, or yeah, so-and-so yeah. did it this way and you're doing it the wrong way. And uh, and it and it can be very frustrating. But I think, you know, we work at the top of the, the RICS organisation pretty closely, the top management team. You know, we all have offices next to each other. The doors are always open. We're always shouting through to each other. You know, we we we. I think that, you know, people working from the office, it's like the beating heart of the organisation. I think if you have people not working in the office, the business loses its soul. You, you lose a lot of what we've got that makes us agile yeah, to make things yeah, work. I agree with that. Yeah. And um, it, one day Rory said to me, um, you know, Tim, you know, we're banging our head on the brick wall with the with the ships, you know, really you know, what you, sh- you shouldn't just carry on doing something because you've always done it. You know, you, maybe we need to look at, you know, some of these other things that we could be doing. And when you, it's a bit like being a farmer. When you've been a ship owner all your life, it's it's a passionate thing that you just carry on doing. And and I suppose it was a it was a you know light went on in my head at that point, and it and it did make me think. Actually, yeah, do you know what? We we need to think beyond what we've always been mm. doing. So what we need to really do is have assets that we add value to. So, for instance, with the ships, we didn't just have them on the open market. We created uh, a liner service running backwards and forwards to the Baltic states. Um, and I spent, you know, a week, uh, a month out finding cargoes for the ships because we put lots of small shippers together to fill the ship up, um, which meant that I was in Riga and Tallinn, in the Baltic states, after the after the after the you know, after the Iron Curtain had fallen away, and I called it the the Wild East because it was it was it was it was it was exhilarating, interesting, and there were lots of opportunities. Um, and so, you know, but that was that was just the ships. But then you look at where we where we've got to with that. We then we then had the uh, the the tankers. The ships turned into tankers. The tankers are then floating filling stations that we have on the River Humber that deliver the vast majority of fuel on the River Humber, and the Humber is one of the busiest estuaries, and we stretch that out up and down the east coast of the UK. So you can make a telephone call to uh, maritime bunkering, and we'll give you a price for anything from 10 tonnes to 2,000 tonnes delivered by our boats up and down the east coast of the UK, which makes us pretty unique in the fact that we can do that. So our ships are now being used as floating filling stations. And the, sh- the dry cargo ships that we no longer have, um, because they'd come to the end of the life in 2008 and 
trade just absolutely fell through the floor. The ships went for scrap. We didn't renew them. Um, two things happened with that. One, we had a terminal with ABP, which we used to bring the timber in through, and that's where the Siemens terminal is now. And what we did with that was we had, when the caravan industry collapsed, not only had I bought the Kersalt business, but I also bought the Atlas storage land, which was 23 acres immediately opposite the dock, actually to build a caravan factory on because we were building a supermarket where the caravan factory yeah. was. But it turned into a timber terminal because it was right off the dock. So we could actually be in charge of our own destiny and take the timber straight off the dock and put it straight on our own terminal. We moved out of where we were to make way for the Siemens um, operation. Um, and now, ultimately, we lease that to one of our biggest customers and he uses it as his timber terminal. And I, and I think that's a very that, that will be very successful for him. You said um, there's always a plan. Yeah, so well, I want to know what what's the plan for for Rick's going forward. What what when you when you visualise the future and Harry and Robbie taking over, what well, do you I'm, think the company's going to look? We're like? getting to the stage now where I've getting to the end of my career, I suppose, and I'm the dinosaur that lives in the museum. If you come see me in my office, it's all pictures on the wall of all the past, and it's the only part of our new office that is about the past everything yeah, else is it modern. is like a museum it is like a museum <laughs> and i am the dinosaur that lives in it and you know i realize that you know i'm coming to the end of my time and you know interestingly rory has um is, has gone part-time now and become a non-exec um although i noticed this week he's been in five days because he's been very busy but um and 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 the, and the kids are now starting to get to a position where they're they're starting to take over and James Doyle has come in, who's moved on from the shipping side to run the caravan side and the manufacturing side, and now he's going to take over as, or is, um, managing director of Ricks. Um, so we're sort of, we're, we're at a changing of the guard, really. Mm. And I've been very keen to sort of leave things for the kids so that it's a, it's a successful business. And actually, it's there's the sort of five main divisions of that business, um, which is energy, shipping, um, manufacturing, property, and van and car sales with, with, with a sort of a, a fintech business tacked on the end, which is um, accountable, which Harry's mm. been involved in. Um, and, and I think that the, ki- the, 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 the boys can, can – shouldn't call them kids, should I – the boy, the boys can can take it in whatever way they want to. It, it's it's completely flexible. Can they to though? Go. How much influence oh, are you? Are well, you no. Still well, I think that I I I have to. Um, the new office is a really good example where I was absolutely. We used to be on Spivey Street, and um, I was absolutely adamant that we weren't going to move offices and we didn't need better offices. But then somebody pointed out that we were sort of trying to make a, a back street office better and better and needed more space. And um, and Harry said Harry wanted to build these you know different sorts of areas that people could be in to make it nicer for them, and it and it just sort of occurred to me that we're in that we were that we weren't going to sort of achieve that, and I knew that two Humber Keys had been for sale, and um, and so I rang up one of the property guys that I know, and he said, oh yeah, we can buy that, you know, we'll sort it out, we can get it for a good price, and um, and I'd been really against it. But actually, we bought the building, came with a load of tenants, we filled it. So for the first time in its history, that building, which was built 10 years ago, is now full and thriving. Um, and and, I, and, I, and that, was, that was wrong. I was wrong. We, mm. we should have moved. It was the right thing to do because 
you know, people work in a nice environment now down on the marina. Yeah. Um, it's a nice office. It's modern. Mm. There are other people there. There's interactions. So I was wrong and, and the younger generation that, were right. I want to talk about that, actually. I'm conscious of the time, but I do want to talk about this. So y- you were wrong? I'm often wrong, Anita. And so any, <laughs> I want to talk about that. Any regrets? Anything's looking, anything looking back now with the benefit of hindsight you would have done yeah, differently? Yeah, I can tell you there is actually. And, it's, and it's, um, it's to do with building ships because we have built ships as well. Funny, we've got ships. <laughs> I know, I know, but it's a regret because um, I'd, I decided that a lot of the ships that we run now, we built for ourselves. And and I suppose what I was trying to do was preserve the jobs of the people that work for us in our little shipyard at Paul. But actually, what I discovered was too late almost with the last ship we built that you can build ships for about two thirds the price in Vietnam or Turkey or wherever else. And and my biggest mistake, I think, was to build one of our the last boat we built there at at the yard. It was too big to build there. And it cost way more than it should have done. And actually, when we're a million pounds into it, I should have just stopped. I think the Scottish government's learning this at the moment, actually. <laughs> uh, I could have maybe saved them a lot of money. But the standing instructions now are, if, we, if I ever suggest we're going to build ships again, I've got to be taken outside the office and shot, because we definitely should not be doing it, because we cannot compete. Sadly, we cannot compete, even without restrictive practices, with um, with with yards in the far so there's east. no more shipbuilding no more shipbuilding for ricks all right he said it not we in heard my it. lifetime We've heard it. i can We've tell heard you now. It. Yeah, yeah 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 thinking back to that that young tim playing rugby running up the slopes not doing his studies what advice would you give to him now looking back um that's an interesting question i've not ever really thought about that well i'm certainly not as slim as i used to be and i certainly couldn't run up and down the slips uh, the, the 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 slopes now and probably what i the best advice i could give my, give to myself is not to become a labrador when i left school because when you'd been starved for until you were 19 years old you when you're freed you can always you can always um, you, you make up for it don't you and i think i've been doing that ever since <laughs> So probably a healthier lifestyle might be the way I would go. Well, one of the on. questions I was going to ask is what what would you change about yourself? So I'm guessing maybe that. Well, I think you, I think look, I think you know nowadays you, you've got to be uh, you've got to be try and be as healthy as you can. I think as you get older, you realise that you, you're not going to last forever. And you know, I know everybody laughs and they see me on my bike and they laugh. But I, I quite enjoy going on my bike at lunchtime because. You know, I do about twelve miles, and it gets me. It gets me out in the fresh air, and it, and you know, if you if you're going to do any public speak or anything, practice while you're on your bike. I mean, people mm. think you're a lunatic when you go past them, but um, and it also gives you time to think, and you clear your head, yeah. and it gets you away from whatever's been getting yeah. on your nerves. That particular and you feel better day. for it. You go back feeling re-energized. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what's next for Tim then? You keep talking about, you know, changing the guard and all that. You're still very much involved in the business. You're still working there every day. <laughs> well, I've been trying to take Fridays off, but that doesn't seem to have worked. Well, it's Friday today. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, yeah, and I've got to, I've got to be back in the office later on. But um, I, I am determined the next, you know, that I have, I am going to step back, and the next generation are going to uh, are you putting a time scale take over. Well, I, it, it sort of happens. It evolves. Mm. I mean, I think of my my father with me. You know, Dad would. Um, you know, when I it, there wasn't a day when I came in and he didn't, and I suddenly took over. It just sort of happened yeah, where yeah. he was there less and less. Um, and and then when he did come in, I'd get a bollocking. You know, once a day, once a week, once a month, it became less. And then 
it was once every six months and now I'm doing the same to the kids. So, you know, life moves on, doesn't it? Do you think you can let go? Can you visualise a day when you can let go? I think when you've been, you know, for 40 years, I've been involved in in Rick's business, how it's evolved. It's way bigger, way more successful than it was. It's way more diversified. There are lots of opportunities for us. Um, It's exciting to go to work. It's interesting to go to work. Uh, If it wasn't, I wouldn't be doing it. Um, I also feel responsible for you know a lot of the people that work for us. You know, it's been a very for me. I mean, it's been a very difficult time for the people that we've had to make redundant. But it's been a difficult time for me because I I absolutely you know when I take somebody on, I take them on because I, I want them to be there for the duration. And we have generations of people that work for our organisation. And when you get to a situation where we are at the moment with the um, caravan industry which is an absolute freefall and is, is a very difficult place to be at the moment. And you've had to make very good people mm. and people that are your friends have become your friends that you know redundant. It makes it very, very difficult. Mm. It's very but, personal. Isn't but it? it is very personal. And if you run a family business, it's probably more personal because mm. you, you walk down the lines, you speak to everybody. You know, anybody can approach me. Anybody can come and see me. You know, and people do. Not very often. But, you know, pe- people have a grievance. I mean, I like them to have gone through the process of seeing everybody else first before they come see me. Otherwise, there'd be no point in having anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, people can, and I think that that's important. That 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 I'm open and available, and that's what exactly what I say to the to the two boys. That that's exactly what, and I, and I believe that they will be. But yeah, I mean, it'll be a gradual process. Um, it doesn't sound like you're ready yet, if you don't mind me saying so. Does it not sound like that? No, no. Well, you're I feel still, as, you're still too excited about it. I you're feel still... as excited now as I was, probably more excited yeah. now than I was, uh, you know, when I started out all those years exactly. ago. Because it's yeah. been, you know, it's been moulded into a into a business that I think is really, really interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean, you've grown it into a massive business relative to you know where it started. Yeah. So, what what would you do if you were going to work every day? What would I do? Ride a bike. Well, I don't think I'd be very good at riding. I can't match. I can't go much longer than an hour and eighty. So I don't think I'd be riding my bike. <laughs> so these are long days to fill. You see, I'll have to get an electric bike, <laughs> which defeats the purpose. No, I have plenty of things bike. that I can do at home. You know, I was always painting and decorating mm. and job. I've got a list of jobs when I go home from. from so before we close, then proudest achievement. I I think just one thing. Proudest achievement. I think actually I'll, I'll put it down to getting my CBE because I think you get a bit of recognition for probably I put being involved for the last ten years in trying to change what happens in the city. Mm. And what was the CBE for specifically? For the economy and regeneration right. of, um, of 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 the Humber region, and if I think anyway, and uh, <laughs> you know obviously I'm a passionate believer in we need to be ambitious in what we do. If I was running the city and trying to run it like Rick's, I would I would be looking at a project like the Lagoon Project, which I promote and came up with because, you know, we need to stop the city from flooding. We need to make sure we've got more land for all the opportunities that are out there with the renewables in the North Sea. You know, we need to make it more of a destination and place make the city. And, and I think that all that, and we need to make sure that the road that goes east-west through the city works and today's a good example because it's taken me an hour to get from the marina to here today because of an accident and 
you know, I, I, I think that there's great opportunities for this area. I absolutely live and breathe Hull. I promote it wherever I go. People laugh at me a lot for it, but I genuinely believe that it's a great city. There's great mm. people that live here, but we need some ambition. And, um, you know, that is the single most important thing that mm. I need, we need to do here. Yeah, well, thank you for all, all your ambition and for doing everything you can to improve this area for all of us. And it's we want to get to a place, a, a point in time where we can talk about Hull and people aren't laughing at us. Yeah, That's and you know what? what? I think do. we got, you know, with City Culture, I think, you know, we, we got there. I wasn't sure when I was chairman of the City Leadership Board about City of Culture, but actually I came to believe in it and I came to see the city start to believe in itself. And so what I was trying to do was look at what we were going to do after City of Culture. How could we... How could we move that on? How could we take advantage of that? And and I had when I came up with the Lagoon idea with a number of other people, you know, we had to raise money privately and we raised half a million quid for it to do all the studies to make sure we knew it would work. If we hadn't had City of Culture and if we didn't have that belief in ourselves, if I'd gone round to see business leaders and asked them for a subscription of five thousand pounds a year prior to something like City of Culture, they would have laughed at mm. me. They wouldn't have given me the money, but actually they did. And, uh, you know, we've moved it on and it's something that, you know, I hope is still possible in the future. Yeah, as do I, as do I. Right, we're out of time. So thank you. That's been fascinating. I hope you continue to sit at the helm of the Ricks group for a little while longer. <laughs> I'm not um, sure the kids think that. <laughs> <laughs> They're desperate to be sat in your seat. Um, no, seriously, Tim, thank you. I know you're very busy, so I appreciate you taking time out today, um, navigating the whole traffic to get to us and do this. Well, I hope I haven't bored everybody, to be quite honest. I'm sure. Well, you haven't bored me. Well, there you go. Well, you're being nice to me. So before you can go, I do have another question, and this has been left by our previous guest. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, so he didn't know who he was leaving this question for, um, and I have it here, Mm. which is, um, have you ever had a sliding doors moment? I'm not entirely sure what that means. So... To clarify, it means something that's happened that was at the time seemed inconsequential, but altered the the direction or trajectory of of your life. Have you seen the movie Sliding Doors? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm not being very helpful, am I? But you understood how I described. I think it I then. think one of the th- I think one of the one of the one of the things that has really transformed the Rick's organisation through one of those moments is is when Rory made me realise that actually what we what it wasn't necessarily you know we shouldn't carry on doing what we've always done. What we should do is we should really think mm. about stopping certain things, even though it was something that we'd done forever, and and um, you know uh, do different things. Yeah. And and I think that that that. When I think back to it, when I, was it? Was it a few years ago? A long no, time ago? no, it was a long. It was. I'm going back, you know, fairly early on right. in in when the two of us started to work closely together, um, and uh, and I think that that's made a big difference. So if it was a sliding door moment, I think that's probably one of the most important things. What are you? Um, I should ask Rory this actually. What are you like to work with? Well, poor old Rory sits in his office and unfortunately I can hear everything he says. So if I disagree with what he's saying on the telephone, I'm screaming through the wall at him. So I'm sure he'll think I'm a bloody nuisance, quite frankly, 
and equally, he could probably hear what I'm saying, but he doesn't shout and he's shaking his me head, yeah. like I do. His head in his it's hands. It's most notable that James has got the opposite a bit, or he's got the office further, further on, on, and I've noticed that he's not moving into Rory's office when Rory uh, <laughs> decides to leave. So he thinks that he won't, I won't be able to hear him. Like I said, Tim, I can't see you leaving anytime soon. <laughs> but anyway, thank you again. I've enjoyed our chat. Yeah, thanks, Anita. I've enjoyed doing it. Thanks, everyone, for joining us this time. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Tim. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, please do so via our normal social channels. And I look forward to talking to you again next month. Until then, bye-bye. This Pacecast was recorded and produced by Engine 7 Audio, award-winning audio production.